the little baby born in a manger who would grow up to be the, the king of kings, who was the king of kings, who is the king of kings. And Lord, for that we praise you. Be with Brady this morning as he brings your message. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us. I just want to say that if um, you did not make it out last night to our Christmas musical, um, I want to encourage you to come out tonight at 6 o'clock. Um, and Todd said it's going to be even better than last night, right? right. All right. There we go. And so uh, this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, will you open to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14? If I haven't met you yet, my name is Brady Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Manchester. And I want to take a moment to invite you to our Christmas Eve services. I want to take a moment to invite you to our Christmas Eve services. This Christmas Eve is unique. It's on a Sunday. And so what we're going to do is we're going to move all of our morning services to the afternoon. And so we're going to have three Christmas Eve services at 3, 4.30, and 6 where we can accommodate everyone. And here's the thing. We want to have three where I can encourage you. Bring all of your family with you. It's going to be an incredible service of candlelight, communion, singing, looking at God's word. It's going to be an incredible time. Don't miss out on the missional opportunity that is Christmas Eve. I want to tell you a little secret. Almost everyone you invite at Christmas Eve is disposed to coming. It's the one time of year they're ready to come. So invite someone this Christmas Eve, um, 3 o'clock, 4.30, and 6. But this morning we are kicking off a new series called The Carols of Christmas. I love Christmas. It's often referred to as the most wonderful time of the year. Trees are decorated. People are drinking hot chocolate and peppermint mochas. Lights are hung on houses all around town. Movies like Frosty, The Grinch, and Rudolph are on TV. And who can't like Rudolph? What an underdog story, right? Amazing. There seems to be an excitement in the air as you go shopping, and Bean Crosby or Michael Blue Blay is playing in the store as you shop. There's just something about Christmas time. Kids can't wait to find out what's under the tree. And all of these things are wonderful. But I am afraid that many people, this is all of Christmas they ever experience trees, the lights, the movies, and Bing Crosby. But underneath it all, underneath the lights, underneath all of the trimmings of Christmas, there's something more beautiful and something more meaningful. And that is the celebration of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid many people stop at the surface and never press deeper into the reality of the gospel itself. So this morning we're kicking off this new series called The Carols of Christmas, where we're going to look at a familiar carol each week and look at the scriptures that inspired it and see it how it that carol points us to the deeper meaning of Christmas and how it should impact our lives today. This morning we're going to look at the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is one of my favorite carols. One of the reasons is, I think Hark the Herald Angels just sounds like Christmas. When it starts, I just think Christmas. And the lyrics are incredibly profound. But this is an interesting song. It's, 
history is interesting. It was written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was one of the founders of Methodism, and he wrote this originally as a poem. But here's the thing that you might not know about the song. The original line was not, Hark the herald angels sing. He wrote, Hark how all the welkin rings. I don't know. I've never sung it that way, have y'all? It sounds like it's from Lord of the Rings or something, right? Like, like you can see why this didn't catch on. Well, the word welkin is an old English word that means the skies or the heavens. It's the same idea how the heavens rang with the praises of the angels. But it didn't catch on. So about 20 years later, George Whitfield, the famous American or famous uh, evangelist who came to America and preached um, from England, he rewrote the, this line to what we know today. He says, you know what? That old hymn did not make it for our modern 1750 audience, and so we need to contemporize it. And so he contemporized the hymn, and he made it, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we've been singing that way ever since. This song is inspired by a particular text of Scripture. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Let's dive in and see what inspired this amazing carol. Verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And catch this part, because this is the part where really inspires this carol. Suddenly, that word suddenly there grabs my attention. That these shepherds, they have one angel come and pronounce them this great message. And then suddenly, there was a multitude, thousands of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying. So a thousand angels show up in the sky and they start singing all together in harmony. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. I want you to a moment, for a moment, imagine with me what it would have been like to be there that night. I want you to put yourself in the shoes, in the sandals, if you will, of these shepherds. And think of what it would have been like that moment as you looked up and you saw thousands of angels singing all together. That would have stopped you in your tracks. Whatever had been going on that day didn't matter anymore. Whatever had been happening over the last week, something had got your attention and captured your soul as you see thousands of angels in the sky singing the glory of a baby. And this is why this carol begins with this word, hark. We don't use the word hark very often, but it's an important word here in this carol. It simply means to... Stop, slow down, and pay attention to. Stop, slow down, and pay attention to. I'm not sure the last time you looked at someone and just said, Todd, hark. 
You, you just don't do that. But it's something we need to learn once again, because I think often at Christmas, especially at Christmas, we're often so busy running around doing last-minute shopping, running from this family event to that family event to this Christmas party at work to that Christmas party. And we are so busy that we can be so busy during Christmas, we can be so busy celebrating Christmas that we never actually celebrate Christmas. And I'm afraid that often happens. So this morning, here's our big idea. If you want to experience Christmas the way that God intends, you must learn to hark, to stop and play close, pay close attention and see what amazed the angels that night. And if you will, then you will experience Christmas the way that God intends. So what amazed the angels that night? What, what, what amazed the angels that thousands of them showed up to sing to this baby? I want to suggest three things to you this morning. Three things. First, they were amazed by his humility. This baby's humility. You see, the angels knew the Son of God before his incarnation. Before Jesus, had, before the Son of God had taken on flesh and was born of Mary, the angels knew him. They knew him because he was the one who had created the stars. He was the one who had created the moon and the planets. They knew him as the one who spoke and the oceans came to be. They knew him as the one who spoke and humanity was created. But now, our carol says, he lays his glory by, he humbles himself, and he leaves the heavenly palace. He comes to earth. The angels see his great humility. One of the most striking things about Jesus' birth is how humble and lowly it is. When you were growing up, did, it, did you ever leave the door open going outside and your mom say something like, Hey, were you born in a barn? I was from Arkansas, so we heard that a lot. But what do you mean? Well, the point is that if you were born in a, not in a barn. You have a higher birth than an animal, so you should, leave, you should shut the door. That's the implication. But what is happening with Jesus, Jesus' birth was actually in the place of an animal. It was so lowly, he was actually born in a barn. He was born in the place of an animal. And you may think, well, that's extraordinary for anybody to be born that way. But, but think about it for a moment. Who is it that was born in this place of the animals? It was the one who made the mountains. It was the one who filled the oceans. It was the one who created, think about this, color itself. It was the one who taught cows to moo and the one who taught dogs to bark. The one who spoke and stars flung into the sky. The one who deserves the praise of every man, woman, and child was born in a manger in a stable because there was no room in the inn do you see the humility of your king this morning? The one who left heaven to come to earth. The one who created the earth, but yet there was no room for him to be born. And so he had to be born like an animal. What humility. The infinite God had become an infant. The one who upholds the universe by his power was now carried by his mother. Here's how Augustine puts it. I think this is incredible. He said, man's maker was made 
Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten and whipped, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. Do you see the humility of Jesus? That's what got the angel's attention. They had known him as the high king of heaven, the creator of the universe, and now he has become so low that he's born in Bethlehem's stable. If we want to experience Christmas, we must marvel at his humility. We must heart, stop, pay close attention to his humility this Christmas. So that's number one. Number two, we must notice his incarnation. We must notice his incarnation. The term incarnation refers to the fact that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who had been with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past, that he took on flesh and became like us. God himself came to live as a human. As the song says, he was pleased as man with men to dwell. The angels knew the Son of God before he was born because he had created the angels. They knew him. And so they get to see this and they're amazed by it. You see, when Jesus was born, he was fully God and fully man. This is what we know as hypostatic union. This is an important doctrine that we need to remind ourselves of this Christmas. The hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God, 100% human in one person. The hypostatic union. This is incredibly important, and there's very practical things I'll share with you in a moment. But here's what this means. It means that before Jesus was born of Mary. He existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit. There was never a time when the Son of God did not exist. The incarnation is when the Son of God, who had always been in heaven, 100% God, took on flesh. He added to his divinity, humanity. It wasn't subtraction. It wasn't division. It was addition. He added humanity to his divinity, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, 100% God, 100% man in one person. Here's what this means. Jesus is the only baby born who's as old as his father and older than his mother. In the first 300 years of the church, this was debated often. And the church leaders spent a lot of time discussing and making sure that we got the doctrine of Jesus correct. Because who Jesus is matters. And they spent a lot of time talking about this. And there were false teachings that came along. One of the false teachings was a doctrine called Arianism. Arianism was taught by a man named Arius. And what Arius taught was that Jesus, though he was really great, he was not God. This all came to a head at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Church leaders from all around the world came together to discuss. 
And Arius, he made impassioned speeches. And Arius also fancied himself taught as a worship leader. So he wrote some worship songs about how Jesus wasn't God. And here's how the songs went. There was a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when Jesus was not. Don't think that was going to be a hit, do you think? Like, and so he sings this song over and over and over. But doesn't catch on, but he keeps on at this council of Nicaea, going through and trying to make this argument that Jesus is not God, Jesus is not God. And finally, there's another man there. So Arius is the man there on the right. There was another man there at this council of Nicaea by the name of Nicholas. You may have heard of him. Some people call him St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was there. He was a, a pastor there in Turkey, and he was known for helping the poor. He would throw coins, it was said, in people's windows and even down their chimneys. He was even beaten for his faith, but would never renounce Christ. St. Nicholas was beaten once so bad that he had red running all over him, and people would see St. Nicholas in red ever since. But St. Nicholas the story goes, was also invited to the Council of Nicaea. And Arius kept giving his speeches about how Jesus isn't God. Well, finally, St. Nicholas has had enough. And what do you see in this picture, this famous painting? St. Nicholas gets up, walks across the room, and he slaps Arius in the face and knocks him to the floor. So I just want to remind you, this Christmas... That the doctrine of incar the Incarnation is so spectacular that if St. Nic Nicholas is even willing to fight for it. And so this morning, make sure your Christology is right, or you might end up on St. Nick's naughty list, all right? <laughs> but here's why this is so important. This is not just an academic thing. Think about this for a moment. Jesus was born fully God and fully man. What does that mean for us? It means as fully man that God knows what it's like, that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to have family drama that's difficult. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to hurt and feel pain and to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to be us in the very brokenness of humanity. He knows what it's like to be like us this Christmas. That's good news, that we have a Savior who can sympathize with us. But here's the good news, too. Jesus is also 100% God, and he not only can sympathize with us, he has the power to do something about it. He's fully God and fully man. And the angels were amazed at this. They were amazed. So the second thing they were amazed at was his incarnation. The third, they were amazed by his mission. His mission. Again, the angels had known the Son of God since he created them. But why would the Son of God leave heaven and go to earth? Why would he take on humanity? Why would, they, why would he add that unto himself? Why? Because the Son of God was on a mission. He had three clear mission objectives. Number one, he had to deal with our sin problem. Number two, he had to deal with our death problem. And number three, he had to deal with our separation from God problem. Three problems that the Son of God was on mission to deal with. To understand this, we have to go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we find God having created the world good and beautiful. There was no death, no disease, no decay. God's relationship with his creatures was perfect. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to sin. They chose to listen to the word of the snake over the word of God. And when they sinned, three things happened. Sin became a part of who they were. Humanity took on a sinful nature. And so Adam's sin didn't just pass down to his sons, but to his son's sons and his son's sons, all the way to us, that every one of us is born with a sinful nature. And so Jesus came to deal with that sin problem by living a perfect life in our place. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the second thing that shattered was that we now, though Adam and Eve would have lived forever, but because of their sin, now God says the penalty is death. And we all have a death problem. Every one of us, if the Lord Jesus does not return, will face death. Every one of us. Every one of us has a death problem. But Jesus came on mission that at Christmas to deal with our death problem, to go to the cross, to pay for our, the penalty of our sin, to take death for us. In other words, Jesus was born at Christmas on a mission. He was born to die. And the third thing that Jesus was targeting was to restore us back into a relationship with God. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Their perfect relationship was broken, and Jesus came to do everything necessary to restore our relationship back to God. So Jesus came to us on mission, because we couldn't come to him on our own. He came to take our sin, to die on the cross, that we might be reconciled to God and be in his presence once again. I don't know if you remember the story of Bo Bergdahl. I heard about it in passing on the news, but really began to pay attention when it was featured on the Serial podcast. Bo Bergdahl was a United States Army soldier who was captured as a prisoner of the Taliban from 2009 to 2014. What complicates things is that many of his fellow so soldiers felt that Bo Bergdahl was a deserter, maybe a traitor to the other side. This all came to national prominence when the United States exchanged five high-level prisoners from the Taliban in exchange for Bo Bergdahl. You can imagine the strong opinions on every side, especially when we were trading five people who might try to kill Americans again for one American who seemed to be at best a deserter and at worst a traitor. Truth is, I don't know if Bo Bergdahl was a traitor or not, but I do know this. The Bible says that every one of us were a traitor to our God. We didn't just make mistakes, but we had committed cosmic treason against the holy God. And God, what did he do? He didn't trade the life of five terrorists, but what did he do? He sent his one and only son to trade the life of his son for you. That's what Christmas is all about. Trading the life of the son of God that you might 
have eternal life. The Son of God became man to trade his life for yours. Jesus was on a mission to deal with your sin problem. He was on a mission to deal with your death problem. And he was on mission to deal with your separation from God problem. And he came that first Christmas on mission. This carol captures this beautifully. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. I don't know about you, but I've been to too many funerals lately. I can't wait for the day when there is the last funeral on planet earth. Jesus came to end death. Isn't that incredible? Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This morning you may be here and you may be wondering, would God give me a second chance? Oh boy, I have good news for you. He'll do even more than that. He'll give you more than a second chance. He'll give you a second birth. Not only will he say, oh, you can have another shot at this, he will give you a, make you a whole new person who will empower you to live in the second chance. A second birth. What a beautiful concept. So the angels were amazed that first Christmas because the Son of God had come down from heaven to become one of us, that he might take our place on the cross that we might join his rightful place in heaven. In other words, Jesus in Christmas is joining humanity where humans can join the family of God. Here's how C.S. Lewis famously puts it. The Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. This is what Christmas is all about. You know, I don't think that angels are all that amazed by our tree and how spectacular they look. I don't think the angels are really that amazed by how great your lights look on your house, even if you're Clark Griswold, right? I don't think the angels are that amazed with our peppermint mochas and hot chocolate. I think the angels remain unmoved by our Christmas movie. Even Rudolph, with his nose so bright, doesn't impress the angels. But when the Son of God takes on humanity, the creator of the stars puts on flesh, goes and lives a perfect life, goes to the tree of Calvary, where he trades his life for yours and mine, reconciling us to God, now that gets the angels' attention. That makes the angels stop, pay close attention to what is happening in the manger. So this morning, if you want to get the most out of Christmas, this year, you've got to start with that old, outdated word. You've got to hark. And so this morning, I want to invite you to stop, slow down for a moment, and pay attention to what's underneath the lights. Underneath it all. To press deeper down into the truths of Christmas.
And what you will see is the incredible humility of your Savior. The incredible incarnation. God becoming man. And you will see that he did it for a mission. And that mission was to rescue people like you and me. And so when we talk about the true meaning of Christmas, let us be clear. It is about King Jesus coming to the rescue of sinners like you and me. That's the good news of Christmas, and it truly makes it the most wonderful time of the year. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know Christ as their Savior. That's why he came. And Father, I pray right now that if there's anyone in this room who does not know Christ as their Savior, they will place their faith in him even right now. Father, for those of us who do know Christ, I pray that you will help each and every one of us celebrate Christmas the way that we should. That we'll press deeper beyond the lights, beyond all the festivities, and we will remember the true meaning of Christmas. That we will marvel at the humility of Jesus, at his incarnation, and at his mission. And we will celebrate it like never before. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, if I can talk with you about anything about the gospel or about Jesus, I would love to do so now or at the Welcome Center after the service. But right now, I want to call each of us to respond to the truth of Christmas. You see, the one thing about Christmas is if you really know its meaning, you can't be neutral about it. You have to make a decision. Is Jesus who he says he is? So this morning, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus the newborn king? Let me try again. Is Jesus the newborn king? Does he deserve our praise? Then let's stand and give it to him this morning.